I'd like to share with you all a story of two Muslim women from Central Asia. These two women were sisters, and they were on their weekly grocery run to the market. And it was it's common in this culture to do all your shopping either for once a week or sometimes even go to the market every day. And they were on the bus. They took the bus to the market, and they got what they needed. And then um, on the way back, they were on the bus going home. They had their groceries with them. And they looked across the seat, across the aisle on the bus, and there was an empty seats, and they saw a Bible laying on one of the seats. Now, neither of these women had ever seen or touched a Bible, a Christian Bible before, uh, but they knew what it was, and probably partly because it said Bible in their native language on the book. So, assuming it belonged to somebody, they just left it there, and their ride back home kept going on and on, and eventually they came to the conclusion that, okay, well, even if this belongs to somebody, they're not here anywhere to take it. Um, so they picked it up, they put it in their grocery bag, and they went home. They were so curious what was in this book. Right after they put their groceries away, they both began to read it. And there's only one Bible and two sisters, but they lived together, so I don't know what system they had, but over the next period of just several weeks, both of them read through the entire Bible. And they both came to the same conclusion at the end. They said, the God of this Bible has to be the God of the universe. And so they said, okay, well, what do we, what do, we do with that? And so they looked at each other and said, well, I think we should maybe pray. So they prayed, and in their prayer, they said, God, would you please send us somebody or show us uh, another Christian so that they can help us live uh, according to this book? So they did that, and I'm not sure how soon after that, but soon after that, one of the sisters had a dream. And in the dream, Jesus appeared to her and said, follow me, led the sister out of their apartment, down several streets into a house that she'd never been to before. Jesus and this woman went through the walls. They didn't go through the door. They went through the walls and into a room where they could see a group of people sitting around on the floor in a circle. And then the dream was over. Knowing that the Jesus in her dream was the Jesus of this Bible, she ran to her other sister who was still sleeping. I said, sister, you have to wake up. I just had this dream. And so she begins explaining the dream to her sister, and her sister finishes the story to her because she said, I had that exact same dream. And then they both said, wow, we know where that place is. I said, we need to go there. So they get dressed, and they go, and they go to this, this, this home that Jesus led them to in the dream. And they go there, and they didn't go through the walls, but they went and they knocked on the door, and a man, after a few moments, came and answered the door. A man looked at them, and all he said was, yes. And the woman asked, are there Christians here? And the, woman's, and the man responded, why do you ask? They said, well, and then the women started explaining the dream that they had to this man. And after explaining the dream, the man said, okay, come inside. They came inside, and he took them to this room where they saw a group of Christians gathered around in a circle, worshiping and praying to God. 
And the man said to these women, he said, I'm so glad you guys came today because this is the first time that we've ever met in this home and we're not sure if we're gonna meet here again. These two women's lives were forever changed just from encountering and engaging with the living word of God. And today we're gonna talk about the power that's in this book. We're currently in a sermon series called From the Ashes. It's this idea that life can burst forth even from something that looks like it's dead. We've been studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Really, they were one story, one book. They were later separated. But it's the story of how the Israelites were taken into captivity, but now they were able to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their life. Craig had walked us through several uh, sermons already talking about how we can trust God in his grand meta-narrative, how we can lean into God's mission and how he chooses for us to change the world or for him to change the world through us. And then last week, we talked specifically about prayer. And today, we're gonna see how Ezra's was call, Ezra was calling his people, not just back to a place, back to the place, Jerusalem, where they were again, but they, he was calling them back to their purpose. Their purpose was to be a people living with God and living according to his word. Ezra knew this book. Of course, his book was a lot smaller than the one that we have today. Just because of that time in history, it was only the first part of the book. It was the, uh, the, the law of Moses. And I, I say book a lot, and I will probably many times in the sermon, but really they were scrolls too. And of course, this is way before Gutenberg's printing press and all these things. So not everybody had, you know, these scrolls. Not everybody had the law of Moses but he knew that he needed to ingrain himself in the law and so that he could help show it to the people and call them to live according to this purpose. And that law of Moses is the foundation of the book that we have today. This book, the Bible, that is the most printed book of all of history, the most read book in all of history, the most translated book in all of history, and the most dangerous book in all of history. Yes, the most dangerous book. You may be familiar with the organization called Voice of the Martyrs. I think they're based out of uh, Oklahoma. This is a big non-for-profit that their whole purpose is to help equip the underground church and more so, but to tell people, to give the martyrs, people that have died for the faith, to give them a voice and to share their stories. They post a, a prayer map each year. I, I really appreciate it. And I have a picture of that prayer map on the screen. And it just shows, this isn't, this isn't through history. This isn't a while ago. This is today where this book, all the places in the world, that it's either completely illegal, restricted, or heavily monitored. And it just goes to show right then, the leaders of these countries that, that are not Christians... If they just thought, well, the Bible, you know, it's just something silly, something stupid, whatever. Like, who would care? Who would care that somebody reads it? If it was just a book that people really loved to read and it made them feel good and it was an inspiring story, but it didn't really do anything in their life, who would care? But even these non-Christians see the power of it in changing people's lives. So much so that they have to do something to say, we've got to stop this. We've got to 
keep the control ourselves because people with this book get out of control real quick. And I didn't re- uh, notice this in the first service, but uh, this, this service, listening to the worship song, there's a line in the first verse of that first song or maybe the second verse, uh, something like, his power is dangerous in the enemy's camp. We need to understand that this same power is available, so easily available to us today. So God, we are so thankful for this word. We are so thankful for how easily accessible it is to us. Lord, we confess that we do not always hold it with the reverence that it deserves. Convict our hearts, Holy Spirit, as we seek your wisdom and guidance through these words on these pages. May you open our eyes to its truth and to its power today. Amen. So if you would open your Bibles to the book of Ezra. And we're going to be in chapter 3. And I'll just warn you right now, we're going to be jumping around a little bit in both books, Ezra and Nehemiah. Beginning of Ezra. Craig's already walked us through this a lot, how God uses Cyrus to help bring the people back out of captivity into, back into Jerusalem. It explains some more things here. And, and then in chapter 3, so Ezra chapter 3, it starts to explain uh, the very first things that they do. Okay? The very first things that the people of God do when they, when they get back to Jerusalem. Starting reading in Ezra 3, it says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadic, here's just a a tip when you're reading weird names, you just go for it. Just have the confidence and uh, you you go for it. Um, Very few people are going to know if you're mispronouncing it right anyway. So, And his fellow priest and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, And his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel and sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what was written to the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Now, what shocks me first about this is being the first thing that they do. These people, their lives are a wreck. Okay, they're coming back from Babylon. They don't have homes. They have no safety. They probably have no food security. But what's the first thing they do when they get back? They come and they worship God. And last time I preached, we talked a little bit about sacrificing, how David was sacrificing uh, to the Lord. And the, the idea of sacrificing something on an altar to God is a little weird for us. But this was the normal cultural way on how to worship the Lord. I think it's pretty safe to say that type of thing is like us coming and lifting our hands up in the air and singing a praise song to God. And the first thing they did was to worship God. And I think we can instantly take heart from this verse too, because it shows that no matter how much a wreck you feel like your life is in, God's there and ready to accept your worship. And no matter where you are in your marriage, no matter where you are in your finances, no matter how crazy busy you feel like maybe your life is, and probably for really good reasons. You know, the fact that you're here this morning, 
first day of the week, to just know that you're in the right place. Not because LCC is perfect, but because we're here for the purpose of worshiping God and studying his word. And how beautiful that example, that he's here ready, no matter who you are, where you come from, what your life is like, he's here ready to accept that worship and be with you. You see, Ezra was able to write a comeback story for his people because he knew what he was coming back to. They weren't just coming back to a place, they were coming back to their purpose. And Ezra was sure to make sure that their purpose was their priority. And until we do the same in our lives where we see that purpose and we make it our priority, I think we can be maybe not surprised that we still feel like we're in exile. Let's skip to chapter seven of Ezra. So a few pages. In Ezra chapter 7, um, well, the, what we just skipped, Craig's already walked through what, of them rebuilding the temple. And now this is really important because the temple, again, back to their purpose to be with God, the temple resembled God with them, God's indwelling among his people. But Jesus, or, uh, Ezra wasn't just concerned about rebuilding the temple. Let's read here in verse, or chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Starting in verse 8, it says, Ezra arrived in Jerusalem on the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. For the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Isn't that amazing? It says, the gracious hand of God was on him, for he devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord. And I think this just confirms other things, other places in scripture that we see, like in James 4, 8, where it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I mean, who in this room doesn't want the gracious hand of God directing us everywhere we go? But I think it's such a beautiful point that it says, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord. And I think we have a challenge too. I just want to take a quick note and lean into this and observance point. We look at Western society, which we all live in. Ever since the Enlightenment, I mean, we have this, um, obsession's not the right word, but this like bent towards the pursuit of knowledge. It's all about knowledge, everything in your head. And the more knowledge, the more power you have, uh, which I do believe is true, but knowledge only changes our life if you put the knowledge into practice. And it almost it seems like it goes without saying that, of course, yeah, you learn something, you need to do it to actually like benefit from it. But it's important for us to be aware that just our natural bent, our Western philosophical tendency is to even maybe subconsciously, so even not actively thinking about it, we just kind of drift towards that. Well, maybe if I just knew more, you know, my life would be better. Or maybe I need to find somebody who does know more because I'm not capable of knowing that much or I'm not capable of understanding the word of God. 
well, maybe I just need to learn more, take another class or do this stuff, and then I'll be able to turn my life around. And then just these little things, when, we're, when we keep it just at that knowledge point, we so easily miss or maybe just skip that simple obedience factor. An example came to mind when I was writing this up of a man from Sierra Leone who's started leading this huge movement of Christians in West Africa where there's now over one and a half million people that have converted to Christianity, most of them former Muslims. And he was talking about when he gets a small group and training people to go make more small groups, he says, I think of what is the littlest amount that I can teach them today? I said, what? He says, yeah, what's, what's the littlest amount of the Bible that I can teach them today? And as I heard him explain this a little more, he says, I know that they need to take one thing and then we say, go and do it. And he understands the fact that he could teach them everything in the Bible. He sure knows a lot about the Bible, but he could teach them everything in there. And if they don't go and put it into practice and do what it says, all of it will be for naught. So he says, what's the littlest thing I can teach them? Say, go and do it. And they come back and we do something else. Say, go and do it. Just think about what would our culture look like? What would any culture look like if we just take the simple facts and laws and teachings of Jesus from the Bible? Love your enemies. And we went out and we really did that. We come back. Pray for those who persecute you. We go and we really did that. And we just back and forth, what would our culture look like if every time we learned something, that really did turn into the observance and obedience? It's very convicting for me. Let's skip a little bit more now and let's go to Nehemiah. Okay, so just the next book, again, probably only several more pages you need to skip. And we're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, don't get thrown off because it's still talking about Ezra, even though we're in the book of Nehemiah here. Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read several parts of this chapter here. But starting in verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gates. Okay, so note some time has gone by. They have houses now. They're there and they're in this community. Continuing, they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. Again, there weren't many copies of it, but he had one. Bring it out, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And just note here that like the, the people here, they, they want it. They're yearning for the law of the Lord. And they say, Ezra, bring it out. So he's, Ezra's not just this street preacher, you know, that, that's uh, maybe yelling at people and you're trying to avoid, you know, as you go along the street corner. No, people are going to him and saying, please, we want God's guiding hand. Verse two. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. 
we see that this book had transformed Ezra's life. And he knew that it couldn't just stop with the spiritual leader. It had to be an example and lived out from the spiritual leader, but it had to be accessible and available to the people so that it could do the same thing for them. Ezra knew that all the people needed a comeback playbook. And he had access to this comeback playbook. The people were rebuilding the city, but Ezra was concerned about rebuilding the community. People living in accordance with the law of the Lord. Let's go to verse five, same chapter. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now skipping a verse or two in verse nine, it says, then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy joyous food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When was the last time we wept from conviction from the word of God? And if you ever have, or if you've been reading the word and you felt that pain from the correction and the conviction of the word of God, you know, you understand that what it says in Hebrews 4.12, that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I've never had a double-edged sword pierce my body, but it doesn't sound very fun. But just like I think of the pruning of a fruit tree, the work's not done when you cut off the extra limbs. It doesn't stop there. Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they, they saw the weeping. They saw the conviction. They weren't against it. They knew that needed to happen, but it wasn't supposed to stop at the conviction. You don't stop just by pruning the trees or the limbs of the trees, but you do that to bring more growth and health and eventually more fruit for the trees. That's why they said, do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, the following verses describe just how the people did this. They let it convict their hearts. They went and they, it says, at least in my Bible, the NIV at the beginning of chapter nine, it says the Israelites confessed their sins. And I encourage you to read this later at home. You can see how they start to live in accordance with what the word of God says, and it changes their life forever. They let God write a comeback story and he led them back to their purpose. And of course, each and every one of us today are living now what hopefully is God writing a comeback story in our lives. And I just wanna encourage you, how do you do that? How do you live in this comeback story? You pick up this book, you let it convict your heart, 
and you do what it says. And it may not be overnight, right? In fact, I, I could almost guarantee that it probably won't be overnight, but there's something about the consistency. There's something about doing that. If, the purpo- if your purpose in God is over here on this stool and you're out here somewhere, every little step you take can either be a little bit closer to that or a little bit farther away from that. And yes, there are some decisions, like what am I gonna eat for breakfast this morning that might not have a spiritual you know, direction but I encourage you to, to think that most do, even small decisions in your life. Some are moving you a little bit closer to that purpose that you have in, God, in Christ or perhaps a little bit farther. And unfortunately, our natural tendency when we're not intentional is to move this way, whether we realize it or not. I wanna also encourage you Uh, with some statistics I found from the Center of Bible Engagement. They did a study back in 2009 where they looked and they tried to find statistical evidence whether the word of God actually changed people's lives. And they weren't just wanting to know like, well, how did it make you feel or how did this or do you like it or not? No, they wanted to know the nitty gritty stuff. They wanted to know specifically, does reading the word of God change your moral behavior concerning destructive habits such as drunkenness, sex outside of marriage, pornography, gambling, etc.? And so they surveyed thousands of people and what they realized and they, they titled uh, this research, The Power of Four, I'd be happy to send you a copy of the whole thing, by the way. You see me afterwards and give me your email address, I'll email it to you. Um, But just a few small highlights I wanna share. They realized that if somebody read the Bible more than four times a week, that that adults were 57% less likely to get drunk, 68% less likely to have sex outside of marriage, 61% less likely to struggle with pornography, and 74% less likely to struggle with gambling. Now, a, a couple things kind of blew me away about this, uh, this research, this article I read. Uh, the first is that these were all Christians that were polled, okay? And they isolated these decisions like, do you, and they, the questions they asked, like, do you go to church well, at least once a month? Do you pray once a day. And what blew me away is that when they saw these things, they said, if, if for a Christian who prays once a day and goes to church at least once a month, they saw almost zero difference between them and these destructive habits than those that read the Bible more than four times a, a week. Almost zero difference. Even those who read the Bible once, twice, maybe even three times a week, they saw little to no difference, but it was something about those who actively and consistently engaged with scripture on a weekly basis. They said, there's something about that. There's a power and we see a dramatic effect in people's lives. The second thing that kind of shocked me about this statistic is they said, we asked the exact same questions to teenagers too, those between 13 and 17 years old. And he said, what we found was that the same things, the same habits, the percentage of them being less likely to engage with them, if they read more than four times a week, they were even higher. Almost all of those four statistics I just read to you were in the 80 percentile for teenagers. And it's just so convicting to think, how important is it that we're reading the Bible with our children? We're encouraging them to do that. 
teens, set your alarm 10 minutes earlier, wake up and engage that. And I just want to, let's be practical here for a second. If you plan to read your Bible every day of the week, hopefully it'll happen four times a week. (laughs) You know, if you plan for four, it probably won't be four. That's at least how it is in my life. I want to just close by sharing a story that's uh, hit my heart recently. Many of you know I work for TCM, one of the mission partners with LCC, and we have a lot of people engaged uh, with the conflict in Ukraine, with this war going on. And we have a lot of Ukrainian students and graduates that are there. And um, some of them were able to, to leave. Some of them chose to stay and either help serve their communities or even help fight uh, in the army. Several of them are, even, are Ukrainian chaplains in the Ukrainian forces. One of them in particular uh, is now in uh, enemy territory, so where the Russians had taken part of Ukraine, and he is now there. And in communicating with him, he says, I have to move almost every night and sleep in a different place because basically the Russians are hunting me. And what I also learned is that chaplains, okay, chaplains in the Ukrainian army, those that are just bringing the word of God to the people and the soldiers they are fighting. They are some of the ones that are highest on the hit list. It just made me so sad. And think like, why? Why are they the ones that are high on the hit list? They're not necessarily the ones that are, you know, uh, the best at killing the enemy or advancing the line or whatever it is. And, but they're high on the hit list. And I asked that question to different people that were a lot smarter than me. I said, why is that the case? And the answer I got was, soldiers win battles, but chaplains change cultures. And I thought, wow, even Putin understands the power of the word of God when it reaches and is engaged by, his, by God's people, what difference that makes in their hearts and in their lives and to their entire communities. Pick up this book, do what it says, and let this comeback playbook help write your comeback story. So Father, that's my prayer this morning. I thank you for every, though, every one of those who chose to be here this morning and to put a stake in the ground and say, God, you're important to me. And Lord, we confess that we all feel at some times that we're in exile and we're outside of your will or we're outside of the purpose that we know you have for us. So God, we're sorry. We ask in your abundant grace that you would help us every step of the way that as we engage in scripture and as we do our best to do what it says, Lord, would you help us? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? And thank you for letting us be a part of your purpose and how to change the world for you. It's in your name that we pray, amen.